0: All right, friends, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you will, find your way to a pew near you. Have a seat. Glad you're here. Thanks for being here this morning, Um, especially if you're you're tuning into this Um, Sunday school class, maybe for the first week. Um, We kicked off last week together, Um, but if you were not able to be here uh, last week, welcome. We're we're glad that you're here and hope that you find this uh, time that we spend together discussing some of the vision and values of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church very helpful. And for some of you, hopefully, there'll be an element of reminder that comes with this, and then for others of you, hopefully, there'll be... um, an introduction so that as you're learning a little bit more about us as a congregation um, hopefully these talks will help uh, along those lines if um, if you weren't here last week I noted as we began that this series that we're in that we're calling upon this rock foundations for life together is a is a series that we actually did in a a similar form, not identical to what we're, we're doing. This is actually a little, a little different, but pretty similar content when we originally founded Cornerstone back in January of 2011. January of 2011, we, we began that on the 16th, January 16th, that Sunday, uh, meeting as a congregation right here in the chapel. And we did about eight weeks, I think it was in that series, uh, that was intended to cast vision and to help give those who were inquiring about our congregation a little bit about what we're committed to uh, as a local body and hopefully get a flavor of what you can expect by being a part of this congregation. Now, um, we have not, I don't think, in the years that we've been here, uh, rehearsed this content in quite this way again. But as the Lord would have it, we've grown. We have a lot of new faces um, than, than it was in 2011. There's a need to go back over content and to be stirred up by way of reminder. And so for many of you, this may be really fresh kind of material. For a lot of you, you're just going to be like, I've heard these kinds of things before. But I hope that you'll be able to say, I need to hear that as often as I can hear it. And, and that's, that really is a part of the conviction of the time that we're spending together today. That no matter if you've heard it for the thousandth time or the first time, there's a need to hear the kind of content that we're coming through. And that's not because I'm speaking it to you. It wouldn't matter who it is that was speaking it to you. It's about the, the kind of things, the quality of the things that we're speaking about. Because they're right towards the center of both what it means to be a Christian, a part of the body of Christ, and what specifically we're, con- we're committed to uh, here at this local church together. Now, I do, because I'm trying to be helpful, I have, we have a handout. Okay, we, we have a handout today. Can I get a couple of volunteers who could help me uh, pass out some things? Great, Brent. Thank you very much. And uh, Chuck? There you go. Toddy beat you to it, man. That's okay. Um, it's the Thought That Counts. And grateful for that. So, last, last as 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 these guys are passing out today's handout, um, I want to I want to just say a couple of things about last week. We um, we started last week um, discussing this this thing called the gospel. All right, now that's a term we said when we g- gathered together. It's a term that we are used to hearing, and we banter it about. Um, pretty freely with assu- assumptions that often people know what we mean when we say the gospel. But what we find very often as elders uh, in, in, in this local congregation, but also el- some of our elders have served in other uh, congregations. In fact, most of our elders have served in other congregations over the years, is that uh, we shouldn't assume too much with regards to our knowledge And we should do a good job of defining terms when when we use them. And a lot of what we're doing in this this whole time together is defining terms. Um, Because theology and thinking biblically requires us to to define what we mean by the things that we say. Um, So for instance, when we say, I believe in the Bible... Well, just about every Christian tradition would, in some way, shape, or form, um, say they believe in the Bible. But what what specifically do you understand the Bible to be saying that you believe? Because you know, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the Bible, <laughs> but they mean something really different in terms of what they believe. So, by 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 drilling in to say these are. These are what we mean when we say that we believe these things about the Bible. is a really important discipline. And, and I just constantly find we, we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. And, and many of the reasons why we do is the default settings of our hearts are often really different than the biblical default settings. And so if we're listening to our voice that's in our head most of the day, and most of us are, it's telling us all kinds of lies that are not true, and we have to have the Bible to continue to be louder than that voice in our heads, louder than you know, mom's voice when we were seven years old, or um, or you know, our spouse's voice or our boss's voice, whatever it is that tends to kind of kind of infill your head. Um, we need the, the truths of the Bible and the voice of the Bible to be stronger and to be louder and to be clearer. And more compelling than the various um, truths or claims that would be given by the world or, or even pop up from our own heart. And so we talked about that last week and we defined really two, two terms. We defined two very important biblical terms that get towards the very center of what we mean by the gospel. What we believe when we use the term gospel. Um, and we started with that term known as justification. Justification. That's what we started with last time together. That term justification, we said, is an act or a legal act where God declares us forgiven in Christ Jesus, having paid for our sins, so the record of our sin has been expunged. It's been been, uh, removed by virtue of what Christ has done for us. And also in addition to that, we've had the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of who he is, credited and charged to our account. So two components to what we mean when we're talking about justification. We're talking about having the penalty of our sins paid, but not just that. We're also saying the righteousness, all the merits, all the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ credited to our account. It's both of those things. Very often in the evangelical world today, we simply focus on having our sins forgiven. That's an important part. But if if Jesus just brings you back to zero to try again, you're in trouble. If that's all he does. Now that's, you know, helpful in so far as it goes. But then you've got Monday morning to deal with. like, And the thoughts and the words and the actions that are going to come out of this next week. All right, and that would mean if Jesus just paid for the penalty of our sins, we'd need a Savior every moment of every day to go die to the cross for our sins, if it was just that. But if He is giving to us all of His righteousness, if by faith the righteousness of God is credited to us, Romans chapter 4 and 5. So we looked at it last week together. Then we actually have a solid foundation on which to enter every single day because we are actually living our identity and our lives out of what Christ has done for us and all of His righteousness credited to our account. So there's no fluctuation in God's view of us and our identity in Christ because it is as secure as Christ Himself all right? And when we began to really grasp that concept, it creates a very solid place from which to live the Christian life. And we looked at an extended quote from Richard Lovelace last week together in his book, Dynamics for the Spiritual Life. There's a lot of places we could turn to Calvin, to Martin Luther, and others. But I think Lovelace really puts it uh, in, in good form. Um, he, he says... Uh, He says this few know how to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform, that's Martin Luther, that you are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for your acceptance. Few know how, Lovelace says, to appropriate that reality on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis that we are accepted looking outward in faith, claiming the holy alien. Now, when you say alien, you're like, was Jesus an alien? No, 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 that's not what it's saying. It means other than you, okay? So it's not yours, it's alien to you. It's someone else's righteousness. Claiming someone else's righteousness, Jesus, as the only ground for your acceptance. So that's justification. The second term that we looked at was sanctification. All right. As you can imagine, if justification was the only teaching that the Bible gave us on what it meant to be a Christian, it would be real easy to sort of start our you know start our Christian life you know with this view of acceptance that we have found in Christ, receive the rest and the joy and the comfort and the peace that comes in that, and then think, okay. If he's done all that, there's nothing for me to do. It'd be real easy to sort of land there. But the Bible actually says God so loves you that the righteousness that he's charged to your account in Christ, he's now shaping you into day by day, moment by moment through belief and obedience to the call of Christ. This is called sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification is this the gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit, which purifies the sinner and renews his whole nature in the image of God and enables him to perform good works. All right, so justification is a declaration, it's a one time act. When you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel, the moment that you do that, whatever moment that was, whether that's a clear kind of you know Damascus Road experience for you where you went from the transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and you can name the date and the you can see the hotel room or whatever the situation was that you were in. Or if it was what we might call that growing light, that sense of where you, one day you went, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I... And I've come, I see what he's done for me. I believe that. And it's been a growing light over the course of your your experience, your sort of existential experience, whether it is that's your testimony. Either way, the moment that that faith was exercised, you were declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Your sins were forgiven and you were credited with his righteousness. It's an act that's already been completed on your behalf. Okay? So you have it right now. Now this is why I think it was John Owen would say when we get to heaven we actually don't get more but in fact we grow into what we've gotten in Christ okay there's not more salvation as it were like in in a justification sense I'm talking about justification you're already declared righteous fully in Christ. That's not going to change. Your, you doesn't it grow. It's an act. It's, it's done. But you, you get more of the salvation you've got. You've already got. And he means by that the glorification. The ultimate, the ultimate day when, when what you're declared to be and what you actually are match. That's the day we're waiting for. The glorious day where justification and sanctification are one. Sanctification no longer has to continue to happen in that glorification sense. It's fulfilled. It's complete. The reality of those two truths being brought in close proximity to relationship with one another actually grows the Christian. All right, that's how we are, we're driven and we're motivated and we, we grow in the likeness of Christ. So, so if I can read the rest of Lovelace's uh, quote, I think this will jump us into our time together today. Let me go back to what he said. It's, this is not on your handouts if you're looking for it. You're like, what's he talking about? It's not on your handouts from last week, but let me just note this. If you know to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform, you're accepted, looking outward in faith, claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the ground for your acceptance. That's justification. Then he says this. Relaxing into that quality of trust, okay, which will produce in you increasing sanctification as it is active in love and in faith. All right, increasing within you sanctification. One of the things that justification and the doctrine of justification, the good news of the gospel, is intended to do is revitalize or invigorate or renew the soul. And when the knowledge of that truth hits the heart, like really case in point, on the spot, you come to a fresh knowledge and awareness of who Christ is and what he's done for you again. It invigorates the soul unto good works, unto obedience in Christ, unto followership of Jesus. Where you begin to say, I don't just have to do the commands of God, though you do have to. But I want to do the commands of God because any God who has loved me to that degree is a God I want to please and I want to follow and I want to serve. You know, it's that fleeting moment when you were nine years old, when you wanted to clean your bedroom just because you knew it would make mom happy. Remember that? It lasted for 10 seconds. Do you remember it? Right? All right. That moment is actually a justification moment or a gospel moment, it would be the way to describe that. It means that you're now not doing the thing because you have to do the thing, but you're doing the thing from a heart that actually loves the person who is pleased by the thing. All right. That's a fundamentally different thing. The operating center of a human heart at that point is different. And you know what's different about it? It's joyful, it's light. It's energized. It's strong. It's willing to suffer. It's willing willing to do what we see a lot of of those who are followers of Jesus in the New Testament and throughout history. All right, so we talked about that dynamic last week together. Well, I want to take that a step further uh, this morning when we go what I'm calling the next step, applying the gospel to the heart, okay? How do we how do we do this? Like, how do we take this and apply this truth to our hearts and lives on a on a daily, regular basis? How do we raise children in such a way? How do we disciple? How do we give comfort to those who are uh, stuck in in grief or those who are battling besetting sins? How do we how do we assist them? So I'm thinking in terms of how to do this with our own heart, but also how to do this with others' hearts. Okay, How do we do that? How do we become a community that's committed to doing that work together? And I think to really really do that, we've got to understand the heart. And that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, discussing together. If you'll look for our objective for today, it is to understand the power of the gospel to sanctify us through heart transformation, motivating and empowering us to put to death sin and to live under righteousness. That's what we're trying to understand today. Okay, that's the that's the goal of what it is we're we're trying to do. And as we do this, this is I want you to hear this as a commitment of this local congregation. Um, we want to strive to be people who are so conversant in the gospel and in the truth of the gospel, and begin to be wise in what I sometimes like to call gaining facility with or gaining capacity to know how to share it with ourselves, with one another, raise our families and our communities in a context where the aroma of the gospel is constantly put forward with one another and on display so that hearts can be changed unto the empowerment and growth in grace. That's really what we're going to focus on. Okay. So before we jump into the heart, just a little bit, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Lord in heaven, we need your grace how would we come to any of these truths in a saving and transforming way unless your Holy Spirit were to, were to be here right now? And for him to take um, these, these, these words, um, stumbling and foolish as they, they are, and to do, um, do a glorious thing and reveal your wisdom. Uh, Lord, we, we are resting and hoping in that, and we are coming to you in prayer right now, pining to you to do that. Would you please come? and see our neediness and meet us in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you'll look at point one, the heart, identifying the heart. I've I've used that word a number of times. We we will use that terminology very regularly here at Cornerstone, whether it's from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class or if you're reading our our Christian formation material on the website. We're going to talk a lot about the heart because we believe that that's got to be... Ground zero, as it were, for the work of the Christian life. Um, it's not that it's the only ground of the Christian life, but it's the central ground of the Christian life when we're when we're dealing with hum, the human person. And when you look at the Bible, there are um, a very fascinating ways that the heart is is described. And I, you know the. We don't have enough time to go through a full exploration of how the heart is used from Old Testament to New Testament this morning so you can see it all, but I'll I'll, I'll make note of a couple of of references. Um, One of the things that you see the Bible doing is using the heart to speak of the whole of the person. This is the primary way that the Bible speaks of the heart. Of course, it's not. There is at times where it's talking about that organ that's pumping blood inside of you, but that's not its typical use biologically. It's usually speaking about the whole of the person, or another descriptor, the center of the person. What is the uh, the driver of an of an individual? This is why sometimes you'll you'll hear the Bible speak of the heart as thinking. As it, has, as it has thoughts. And you think, well, I think of the mind as having thoughts. Well, the Bible will speak of the mind as having thoughts too. It's, it's getting at more the whole of the person. And I'll, I'll show you that here in just a minute. But like, take for instance Genesis chapter 6. Right before the flood, when the world is going crazy, right? Violence, immorality, all of the, all of the pre-flood debauchery is taking place in Genesis chapter 6. God describes the wickedness of man as every intention and thought of his heart was evil continually. It's a really like full description. Notice it used the language intention, which has this idea of of inclination or a a tilt toward. Okay, we'll we'll come back to that. That, That's one use of the heart thinking. The heart um, choosing. That when the heart is spoken of in a way where it's, it's making an action. So, so in Psalm 28 7, uh, David speaks of the heart exulting, it's doing something, okay, it's acting out, it's giving praise. Okay, so the heart is actually demonstrable in an action. Uh, Jesus speaks that if we really love him, we will keep. His commandments. He means for us to do things when he says that. He means something actionable. And he's using love, a subject that we usually attach to the heart. And in 21st century North America, we usually attach to emotions specifically. He's not using it in that way. He's using it in a thoroughly biblical way where everything about you has been so captured with love of God that you can't help but do. All it is that he's called you to do. Okay, So the heart chooses. The heart does feel. In case you were thinking I was going to neglect that one entirely. You feelers out there. Um, uh, it, the heart feels. In, in Psalm 27.3. Uh, again the psalmist speaks of the heart um, not fearing and then later fearing. The heart experiencing the emotion of a, of a of fear. So, so apparently it's a very multi-layered. We could look at many different descriptions of this. On your outline, you can see how I've really summarized it for you. And I'm kind of borrowing from C.S. Lewis here, who who really gets to this notion of the heart being the driving center is the best way to understand the Bible's use of it. Notice the line I've got there on your handout. The heart is essentially the internal core commitment that drives or motivates your thinking, choosing, and feeling. It's the core commitments that drives things for you. It's the, if we could put it this way, it's the why underneath the what's of your life. It's the why that you do things. It's getting to the internal operations or the commitments. Um, notice I put Matthew 6 21 on your, on your passage here. That's, that's Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount where he's talking about money and he's talking about wealth and, and not laying up treasures in, in, in earth, on earth where rust and moth will come in and, and destroy and thieves will break in and steal, that passage. But he says, instead, lay up, lay up treasures in heaven. And then he goes on to, to tell us about where we can find our heart. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so, so the question we ask our, our hearts is, if you don't know where your heart is, what is it that you're treasuring? Look for what it is you're treasuring. And you go, I don't know what I'm treasuring. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your money? What is your mind operated with? What what consumes your thought patterns? What are you doing your very best to be able to achieve? And and in that achievement, why are you after it? Why is it so important to you? If you begin to ask those questions, you're going to get to some things. You're going to get to some things in your own heart. So it's that internal core commitment that's there. So I've given uh, two examples here, these competing. What often happens in our lives with our heart is that there are a variety of different treasures, right? Do you, you recognize this? There are a variety of things that you want like all at once. Um, and you probably find achieving all those things all at once very difficult um, because you can't really achieve them all all at once. So what happens is the heart has this throne, if I can give you an illustration. The heart has this throne that the king sits on, the thing that is your treasure, that's ruling. That's why, it's why the old theologians, just to stop and say this for a second, the, the older theologians um, speak of the reigning affections of the heart, reigning as in R E I G N, speaking of ruling over. What is the ruling affections of your life? Well, throughout Monday, it might be money, it might be comfort, it might be health. It might be like you might experience all those at various times throughout the day and at various moments. Um, what Thomas Chalmers like to say is never is the heart without a reigning affection, but the reigning affections of the heart might constantly change. All right, so, like, we'll say something like, I'm gonna live for Jesus today. Well, that's an aspirational part, but you're probably gonna struggle to actually live that, that out. He may be your professed treasure, but he may not be your functional treasure throughout the day that actually is driving you. That was a great, great example of this was this week, um, Greg Wilbur and I got to go to a conference, the Getty Sing Conference in Nashville, and was there on Tuesday. And, Incredible uh, violinist David Kim, who played for us one day, and he 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 played "Spring" by Vivaldi. It was this beautiful moment where just this you know ten thousand of us were hushed at the beauty of this of this performance. And then later he was on a panel discussion. You know, like a couple hours later, and he said, uh, "You know, we were talking about um, how to inculcate congregational singing and and worship and and worship to the glory of God." And he said, "You know." I've had several of you, after the performance this morning, come up to me and go, thank you for using your gifts for the glory of God. And he said, you know, most of the time I was up there just going, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up, don't screw up, right? Well, What was he he saying? He was saying, I was motivated by fear, worry, concern. Now, I was worshiping, but that's what was driving it. That was, that was the operating thing. And he says, I just find as a musician, that's a constantly difficult thing for me to battle. Okay, Most of us can get that. What we're, what we're dealing with there is a beautiful expression of worship that missed the heart of it. That missed the heart of it. So this idea that things are moving on and on inside of our hearts, rotating through the treasures that are there, and different motivations are driving what's there is part of what we're getting at when we try to get to the heart. Trying to be honest and learn to identify and confess and repent of. And you'll see, I hope, in a minute why that's so important. So Edwards, when he speaks about aiming at the heart, and that's part of what we're trying to do as a congregation, is learn, and it's part of what I try to do in preaching and teaching, is what I hope that we're trying to do in our Christian formation attempts and small groups and other things, to not just give you practical know-hows to to live a, best, a better life now kind of a thing, or, or to... Um, or to just make you feel good in the moment, but to hopefully be so shot through with the gospel that your thoughts, your feelings, and your, your your choosings are beginning to drive towards everything that Christ wants you to be and has called you to be. So we're gonna touch the heart, we're gonna aim at the heart. We don't mean feeling, don't hear it that way. We mean try to connect to the whole the person. Now, that does mean you'll need some practicals. That that does mean there'll need to be some emotion. That does mean there'll need to be some thinking. Because the heart encompasses all those things, it needs all those things to be to be engaged um, so last night, I had fifth grade fantasy football draft with uh, some some dads, and uh, I clearly did not have my heart as engaged as some of the other men who were there, who had come with like copious notes and like multiple. Technology devices to figure out to like I'm like what app do I need what 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 do I need to do Nate it's your time I I don't what I do don't know choose for me I don't know you know I had no idea what was going on these men had prepared they had thought they had all kinds of feelings about the team that they wanted and they were prepared to choose me I, my heart had not been captured I had not set aside time to do this uh, and I was I was lost I was just there for the ride I was there for the fellowship I actually had a different aim. And a different name. Not saying it was better or worse or whatever, but I just thought hanging out with dads with my fifth grade sons are probably a good thing for me to do. And if fancy football is a way to do it, great. Right? right? It's a different name. It's a different name. It captured my heart differently, so I, was con- I conducted differently. I'm saying again, not good or bad, I'm just trying to give you, a, give you an acknowledgement of how it works. Three common evaluations of how we speak about our Christian life—if you'll look—that's kind of Edwards. Edwards is—I'm kind of channeling Edwards there at aiming at the heart, so you can kind of get, kind of pick this up. Look at those three common evaluations. Here's the things we'll say: like, I know the truth, I'm just not practicing it, or I know the truth and I'm doing what I need to do, I'm just not happy. <laughs> right? We've all—we've all found the miserable obedient person. Right. If I only knew the truth, then I'd practice it. You know, we say things like that. You know what Edwards would say? He'd say, that's not your problem. He he would say, if you're not practicing it, you don't really know it yet. Because the knowledge of the thing is inextricably connected to the practicing of the thing. And the practicing of the thing is inextricably connected to the thinking and the feeling of the thing. And the goal in actually changing which is not simply doing the right thing. We're talking about internal operations here. The goal of all of that coming together means you have to engage the heart. Okay, The thought, the feeling, and the will has to be engaged. All components of it. So, so actually, it, when you go, I'm just not practicing it. I'm not doing what I need to do. You know, you know what you're actually saying? I have not so fallen in love with Christ and the mission of His kingdom to love his commands as if they were honey to me. I have become someone who can regurgitate knowledge that has no effect on the way that I live. And we would call that a divided heart, right? And that's what that's our condition, okay? In case you're wondering like, wow, that's me like every day. Well, that's all of us every day, all right? So you're, you're among friends in this room. We're all battling and struggling for that. But the question is, how do you get at it? And most of the time we answer the question like, I need more knowledge, or I need more pra- more practicals, or if someone could just inspire me for a minute, and all of those things are very short lived. They they hardly get you through getting out the back door. Okay, when gospel change begins to happen, whole whole man begins to change. All right? So so when, let's look at point three: con- confronting the uh, the true source of our of our sinfulness. Okay, I think this is really important. Um, to try to understand how to, how to work through this, I'll try to give a few examples as we go along. Um, you see that John Owen quote there? Uh, John Owen, kind of the, the prince of the Puritans in volume six of his writings. He says, A sense of the love of Christ in the cross lies at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. This, a, sense, a sense, a taste of the love of Christ in the cross is at the bottom. It, it's fueling. It's so at the foundation of any true sense of mortification. If you're, if you're going to die to sin and you're going to live into righteousness, you've got to have a strong sense of the love of God in Christ. Okay? That's, that's what it, Owen is arguing in that. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I'm going to try to unpack that for you. Notice that I put on here distinction between root sins and fruit sins. So that this is an old classic, again, Puritan distinction, and, and, and mostly Owen I'm leaning on here. In our lives... We have what we would call the manifesting sin, right? The fruit, the fruit sin. It might be lying. It might be stealing. It might be sloth. Um, it might be anger. But it's the demonstrable thing, right? It's it's the thing that's that's people can see. Um, that, that it's kind of hard to avoid, right? So in our passage this morning from, from Genesis 38, uh, Judah has an issue with lust in the passage. It's pretty clear in terms of the way the passage is written. And he demonstrates it in immorality. And we could go, man, his, his issue is sexuality. This guy's got to deal with his with this sexuality. Now that's true, that's his root, That's a that's a that's a fruit issue. It's manifesting a deeper issue. That's that's really at the core. Okay, the the root sin is the concealed sin that actually fuels the fruit sin. Okay, you, get, you know, sap runs, the nutrients run up to be able to produce the fruit. And so, if you are just going after the fruit, guess what happens? It keeps coming back. I mean, this is what happens. So if we, if we go like, I'm just not going to lust again. I'm just not going to lie. And we just, you know, we're going to grunt it out. Well, good luck with that. that I mean, you're going to find that. In fact, you'll probably make it worse. Because you're going to try so hard. Then you're going to get so tired. Then you're going to become incredibly vulnerable. And then you're going to fall back down the rabbit hole. I mean, that, that's very often the cyclical nature in, in our attempts at mortifying sin. We've got to actually get at the sin underneath the sin, or what's called the root sin, or the thing that fuels the root sin. Now, if you'll, if you'll turn over on the back, you'll notice I've given some diagnostic questions here. What is the manifesting or presenting sin? What is the motivation behind the presenting sin? I'm asking you to ask that question. Now, why am I asking you to ask that question? Because if the heart... Is what drives you, then we've got to ask Judah, why are you so tempted towards immorality? Why is sexual sin taking on a life of its own and is consuming your passions and your affections? Could it be, okay, what is the relationship between the roots in the gospel? Could it be that you have not found your greatest pleasure in Christ? Could it be that you have not found your greatest comfort in him? Could it be that you are running from a number of things to seek for superficial acceptance because you have not really fallen into the arms of Christ? Okay, you see how that's different? It's different than to say like, hey, get, you know, something for your internet to keep you from clicking on that thing. I'm all for that. I have those protections myself and my family does. That's a great thing. And if you don't, please do for your family's sake. Just word from your sponsors there for a second. Um, That's a great thing because the the flesh is weak, right? So you'll have those things in place. But you know what I really got to deal with? The heart that wants to click on that thing. Because there will be a time where it will get to, Right? There'll be an opportunity or whatever. I'm just using that because it's in our passage this morning. Whatever it is for you. So for instance, for me, when I was a young man. One of the things that I dealt with, and, and, and don't don't I, would, I wish I could say I'm never tempted in this way. Because I'm still tempted in this way. But praise the Lord with great victory. Um, as a young man, I was very, very tempted to lie. And was tempted to lie for like no apparent good reason. Like it wasn't to get out of something like, you know, like to, I'm going to get in trouble. So I go, no, I didn't hit my sister. No, it wasn't that kind of lie. In fact, I was more prone in those moments to tell the truth. Um, I noticed that when I lied, because not everybody lies for the same reason. But when I lied, it was because I really wanted someone else to think good of me. Or I wanted to make some deep connection with a person I didn't have a deep connection with. So, So just superficially. So, Nate, have you watched that new series on Netflix? Y- yeah. No, I hadn't, but, you know, that would be a temptation. Well, that's a dumb lie, Nate. Why don't you just say yes that, or no, that you haven't? Well, I, I, I want to connect with you because connecting with you is so important to me. It's the treasure. All right? What, I just told you this about me with regards to fancy football last night, right? Like, I'm, I'm thinking, I want to connect with these dads I don't really know. And they're like, I wanna win fantasy football, right? And I'm like, you guys are in front of your screen, we should be chatting, you know, right? Because our, our, our hearts are in different places in terms of the, the drive that's there. But you see how the sin was connected to actually the desire. As soon as I begin to understand that the reason why I don't have to be driven by acceptance or connection with others is that I have full acceptance and connection in Christ that no one can take from me. And I have so tended and nurtured that relationship and the fruit and the sweetness that comes from it that I can actually be honest and not have to lie. Now, what's interesting about that is there's a whole other series of people in the world who who, who, who lie not to be inconvenienced by others or, or who lie to get ahead or to trample others. There's all kinds of different reasons for why you might lie. You've got to get to the sources behind it. You've got to deal with the, the heart. You've got to ask those questions. What is the relationship between this root sin and the gospel? What have I not connected? Why is that so important to me? In, in terms of righteousness as well as doing something that you ought to do. So not just sinning, but let's say you ought to read your Bible. <laughs> you ought to pray. You ought to evangelize that neighbor that you're not... You're not speaking to like their eternity hangs in the balance next to you and you can't open up your lips when you have opportunities to, next to them. Like, what's going on there? Well, okay, what's going on there most of the time? It's fear. And you're afraid of losing face in front of them and so you're not willing to share the gospel in case that you might be rejected. Now, we might couch that as I'm trying to be wise and I'm looking for an opportunity. But most of the time, we're actually skirting the heart issue. A lot of the time. Right, A lot of the time, we're just not being honest with ourselves. And so really, the issue that's actually going to help you open up your lips is not simply to shame you into doing so, but is to make you so safe that you can be able to experience rejection and fear and put it to rest because you've been accepted in Christ. You have nothing to fear because perfect love casts out fear. That's why you can open up your lips. See how that's different? It's completely different. So the bell just rang. So if you'll, look at, if you'll look at Galatians 2 real quick and, and 2 Corinthians 8 real quick, I'll just summarize these before we, before we go so you can see how application of the heart works. So this is Paul. Now I want you to see that I'm not just making this stuff up. Galatians 2, I'm saying it this way so you can experience it. But I'm not actually you know, exegeting passages for you. I'm giving you a couple of examples here. Galatians 2 is where the apostle Paul confronts Peter when he quits eating with the Gentiles. You remember this? He quits eating with the Gentiles um, because he's afraid of this, what's called the circumcision party. What a fantastic name. Um, the circumcision party. He's afraid that they're going to look down on him for eating with Gentiles who's so not being kosher. By Jewish law. But he was, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when this group came to town. He quit eating with the Gentiles. And uh, Peter's, Peter, um, Peter's doing that. And Paul says. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And very interestingly. His, his uh-uh in the passage. Is not what it could be. So for instance. Uh, it could be. That he. Um, could say to Peter. Peter. That's not kind. You broke the not being kind rule. Or you could go deeper and be like really like buzzword. You're a racist. You're choosing one party over another. That's what he could do. Now in some ways, he is being that way. He's being a kind of religious, there's a religious bigotry. It's kind of happening here in exclusiveness that's going on. Paul is calling it out with regards to Peter, but that's not what he does. I'm just telling you that's not what he does. Notice knows what he does in the passage. He says, I opposed opposed him, that is Peter, to his face, because he stood condemned. It's a really strong language. For before certain men from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of of the Jews, notice others, acted hypocritically. That's the word he uses along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, this is what he says, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How does it, what does the gospel have to do with this? What does the gospel have to do with eating food with people? It's not, it's not, what, it's not exactly what Paul's trying to say here. He's saying, Peter... If God has made all people one in Christ, and we are now equal with our brothers and sisters in Christ from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, and you are a part of that fully accepted group, even if a group within the church looks down from that standpoint, You can stand assured and be confident in Christ and continue to eat with the Gentiles because Jesus has placed you among the accepted group of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. You don't have to treat anybody with favoritism or operate in fear among anyone else. He's not in step with the gospel. He was showing that he had not worked out the knowledge of the gospel in his relationships, he hadn't thought through them. He was acting in a way that was out of keeping. One quick thing and then we'll go. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a positive example. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. And it's a great, it's a wonderful passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's trying to get them to give money. right? He wants them to be generous and to give money to, to help the poor. And as he speaks to the church at Corinth, he reminds them of others who have given. But his main focus is, he says this. He literally says this. I don't have it quoted for you. He says, um, I don't want to have to command you here. It's very interesting. I don't want to have to command you. It sounds a little bit like mom, doesn't it? I don't want to have to tell you to pick up your shoes. You know, sort of that. To he says, I don't want to have to command you, meaning I could. But that's not what I'm after. I'm not really just after you opening up your wallet and with a frown, giving your money. That's not my, that's not my aim. That would miss the aim of what I'm, what I'm actually after. He says, instead, I would like you to ponder. Jesus, who was so rich, gave up everything he had to you who was so poor. So that in Jesus, you could become so rich. Now give. Give. See how different that is. It's a fundamentally different way of getting at the heart. He says, I want you to ponder the gospel. I want you to see what you're the recipient of. I want you you to acknowledge and and to stew in and soak in. Let your heart be arrested by the reality of Jesus so that you become, next section, cheerful giver. You don't ask, how little must I give? You ask, how little must I hold back? in order to survive so that I can help the work of the kingdom. That's a completely different art. When we're after this kind of discipleship, it means that we're not merely after an experience of a self-help reality in the midst of either a worship service or a Sunday school class. We're not after a feel-good inspiration. Um, We're not after a mere lectureship where you lodge away all the right truths in the corners of your mind to collect cobwebs. We're after your heart with all those things. We're after the changed life. We're after perpetual transformation. That those things would continue to capture you and continue to shape you into the likeness of Christ. There's a lot more to be able to say on that. We're actually going to talk more about that in the days to come. And I'm going to give several other examples of ways in which I think that we often use the Scriptures or often use our discipleship with one another in shaming, fear-based, and reward ways that have nothing to do with the gospel. And we wind up either training each other to be good Pharisees or to be great sort of capitalists, always looking for the dollar sign or the reward at the end rather than actually being motivated by the beautiful face of Jesus. And we create something different than Christianity, than the heart of the gospel. We'll come back and talk about that. Father in heaven, help us with these realities. Help us with these truths. Help us to understand them. Help us to stay in them. Help us to be honest with ourselves regarding them. And help us with that, by your Spirit, to be changed. That we might truly become people who look a little bit more like Christ. Each and every day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.